Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Because it's time. It's, it's time for reparations. LGBTIQ rights are black rights. We have always been here. Black queers, we will always be here. It's like, it's a form of cultural imperialism. The only thing I have in common with this character is that she's black. This does not look like me or sound like me. I'm Gary Foley. I'm Francesca Ramsey. This is Amir Rahman. And you're listening to The Race Card. Welcome to The Race Card. I'm your host, Amina Ziard. And joining me in studio, we've got Ahmed Yusuf. Hey. And our guest host, Magan Magan. Hello, hello. And so before we begin, we'd like to do an acknowledgement of country, we acknowledge the Kulin people as the owners of the land on which we meet, and we pay respects to their elders, past, present, and future. This land was never ceded, and the processes of colonization, occupation, incarceration, and genocide that began over two centuries ago continue to this day. You're listening to our one-hour show where we chat politics, current affairs, and pop culture with a little bit of a twist. And joining us in studio is Sukjit. Hello. And today, we look at the new indigenous superhero that's making waves, how activists and doctors protested the release of baby Asha, the indigenous politician not allowed to speak her language in parliament, and our feature discussion is on the accessibility and inaccessibility of anti-racist education and activism. This week, we've got Sukjit Kaur Kalsa, poet and you know, taking Australian idol, oh no, not Australian <laughs> idol, Australia's <laughs> got talent. Australia's got talent by storm. Apologies, Sukjit. But yeah, you, you are taking Australian, Australia's got talent by storm, and actually Australia by storm with that viral poetry piece. So I just wanted to interject and say, I actually think Sukjit could take on Australian idol. <laughs> it's not beyond you. Ooh. Oh, <laughs> hey. Have you heard my singing? He's Can you pretty... sing? Yeah, I have. Oh, I cannot <laughs> sing. Hey, I've heard you. I've heard <laughs> you. Oh, right. <laughs> thank you. I just need some lessons. <laughs> How scary it must have been to, to actually go on Australia's Got Talent and and do that in front of like 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 millions of people like that that's that's legitimately who you were performing towards because Australia's Got Talent I'm pretty sure gets like at the very least a million viewers or or the like and and how big of a deal was that how how do you feel I think that I didn't tackle it as a I didn't really fathom how many people I didn't really fathom how many people I would be reaching because. I didn't really understand what prime TV, TV actually meant until it went viral and people down the street actually started recognising me. But when I was performing, it was just um, performing for any audience, just like going to Voices in the Attic or just like going to the State Library and it didn't feel any different. But I think the after effect, since it had been pre-recorded um, a couple of months before, only when it got aired did I feel the effect and I was like, oh, my goodness, it isn't just Indians worldwide um, that were like, oh, my goodness, and all the Indian newspapers are getting onto it. It's actually turned into, like, random people messaging my family members and distant family members from, like, Canada and Malaysia and, like, all, all just random parts in the Middle East and just, like, going, hey, have you heard of this girl? And they're like, oh, that's my niece. Oh, that's my auntie. Oh, that's my... And it's just like, What? Like, how did, how does, I did not understand what viral meant until this week, to be honest. Because I remember looking at your Facebook uh, Facebook page and you had like a, a paltry 24 likes. And I just looked this morning and you got 6,300 and something. And like, I don't know what you did. You can maybe pass on that information to us. <laughs> We've got like 500 and something people liking us on Facebook. By the way, if you're listening to the podcast, you should like us on Facebook. Um, uh, Facebook.com forward slash race guide show. Yep. Uh, that's the plug done. Uh, but yeah, like how, because like, that must have like changed a lot of, I guess, your everyday life. Because I remember you were saying just before we started recording, you went and had dinner with a friend and a, f- a famous friend and they didn't get recognized and, and you did. 
Yeah, that was so weird. Walking into any Indian... First, I thought it was just Indian restaurants, but the restaurant I was talking about was actually an Ethiopian restaurant, and it was a night after the episode had aired. And this um, this restaurant owner actually rung up his kids and was like, oh, my God, Sugjit's here, Sugjit's here. And I'm like, what? They're, and they're, people come up to you, and they actually go, hey, you Sugjit. And you just hear whispering going, Sugjit, 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 Sugjit. And you're just like, oh, my God, like, wow. So my question is, was there ever a moment of self-doubt did you ever question yourself going on Australia's Got Talent? Was this something that was on your mind to try out for a few years? I mean, what's this backstory? It's funny because I, I feel like, of course, there was self-doubt. I'm going to answer that question in two parts. First thing, definitely self-doubt. I was so scared of the whole of Australia hating me because the first question you asked Ahmed was about, you know, is it nerve-wracking that you're going to be speaking about such a touchy topic on TV where it's not commonly seen in that way and especially spoken word I was scared that I had to represent not only spoken word I had to represent the Sikh community I had to to represent Indians I just it was just a lot of representation and that's a lot of pressure to hold so yeah I had a lot of doubt I was scared that I wouldn't even get through the first round and the fact that I have is just is phenomenal and I didn't expect it at all but um the first question you were asking about was um what did you say before? You said uh, self-doubt and okay. I forgot. I, yeah, I, I forgot, forgot it now. I forgot <laughs> the first question. You, you said something else. Do you remember? I guess I guess it was just like... Oh, oh. sir, I think I remember. It was a backstory. Backstory. I mean, was this something yeah. you were planning? Is, was this something you were planning to get onto or you just randomly on a whim maybe just decided to go Absolutely. for it? Absolutely. I was, I was in, because um, I moved to Melbourne about 11 months ago and I went back to Perth, I think it was around May or June um, last year. And I got an email, I'm not sure how, but I used to be part of an acting agency. So I think they were just sending out random casting calls. Um, and So I got an email saying auditions for Australia's Got Talent. And I remember watching that show as a kid and you know, I used to get caught up and swept away by the sob stories and the emotions and I would watch them on YouTube and little clips all around the world because they've all got, got talents in every country. But I never could have picture my face on there. And now that it's happened, I'm like, wow, that just shows there is access to a lot of people. And, you know, we assume that it's a lot of tokenism when it comes to being of a minority in Australia from a different and cultural background. But... I think I wanted to prove to myself because as a kid, I never saw young Sikh girls on TV, on Australian TV. And I said, you know what? If no one else is going to do it, why, why am I waiting around? I'm not going to wait around till the next generation. We need to start doing it now because I do not want to bring up daughters in a society that doesn't encourage us to you know, pursue our passions and actually not you know, live in this tokenist side character. I'm sick of being a side Indian character. I don't want that anymore. So I thought, you know what, how, what, are the, what better other way is it to go on national TV, talk about issues I'm really passionate about. Um, and I'm just sick. And I'm also, you know, all these conversations we have, which I'm sure we'll be having today as well, about um, racial discrimination in Australia. It's interesting how they tackle it or how we tackle it as a nation. I think we're going through an identity crisis, to be honest, as Australians. When, you know, you walk down the street and you ask someone, what makes you Australian? People have no response. Is it, you know, my birth that makes me Australian? Is my accent? Is it? So I think it's really important to start asking these questions because it's a really good time for that. Were you you kind of like afraid beforehand? Because... You were going to be doing a piece, and and have you been surprised by how it's been received? Because you've basically been the poster child for spoken word, the Sikh community, uh, Indians worldwide. So everything that you said you were presenting, now you're like the poster child for that. Do you are you kind of surprised by that reaction, or and are you also afraid what that responsibility might hold? I think I've, I think my upbringing. And every experience I've had in life has prepared me for this moment. And that sounds so cliche, but I didn't realise it until now. All these things when it comes to managing yourself and managing your own PR and how you are represented. I feel like I've got training, life training for that of how to... Because when you, when you are a minority in Australia, whether you like it or not, you guys would also agree. Being a Muslim Australian, 
you represent you somehow have to just hold the shoulders of every Muslim in the world. Oh, and it's a ha- it's apparently you do and no one really understands that you know you're we can't you can't actually be an individual you can't have like all these other passions or you know opinions on things now i have to have an opinion that you know allies with and lies within the certain grounds or you know even now hanging out in the city i will have to be careful not that I'm a raunchy girl, but, you know, like I do have to worry about these things. And I feel like I already used to do that, but now it's just another layer of being, you know, in the public eye. But I'm also happy to do it. I think that, um, you know, I, one thing I've been emphasising is it's not it's not, the, it's not me that's a celebrity. It's not me that's a star. It's a message that is a celebrity. And that is a beautiful thing about spoken word. And I'm just lucky to be the body who got to carry it. Um, I think that was a very beautiful way to end your your answer. Um, speaking of, you know, the message, let's talk about the means of the message. Let's talk about spoken word culture. Um, so obviously when you performed and you performed spoken word, I felt like because you did that, it was encouraging of the arts and not just the arts, but diversity in the arts. Do you feel similarly? Absolutely. I want I want everyone, you know, going back to your um, previous question about doubts, I was so scared to represent spoken word because I don't consider myself a legit, um, you know, written a book or, you know, toured the world with my poetry. That spoken word poetry and that, you know, art form is just a part of who I am and it's just one facet. I feel like I've got all different parts to me. Um, so I feel that it's really cool that I got to represent that and also open that world up to everyday Australians and everyday ethnic Australians who might, you know, feel... Ethnic's a really weird word to use, but, you know, you get the point. You know, different people from different um, cultural backgrounds who might want to be the star in a ballet show but, you know, can only be chosen if, you know, it was a particularly cultural ballet show. Now they can be like, hey, she was on mainstream TV. I can be in mainstream. Because sometimes change does not occur when we're in our incubated, safe, comfortable, left, you know, feminist, vegan environments. Like, I love that environment. I live in Brunswick. I'm very happy that I'm there. But we need to make change in mainstream society. That's where I think change can happen. You, you talk about kind of being more than just a spoken word poet or things like Because I know you do, you do a bit of theatre. <laughs> talking about the arts, talk to us about something that people might know about you, theatre. Yeah, so I my passions actually started. Uh, my dream was to become an actress, and probably still is. Um, and I want I tried out for WAPA back in Perth um, a couple of times, and hopefully I'll try out for VCA this year um, in Victoria to get into the acting program. Um, and then I, you know, fell into spoken word, and that's kind of taken over for a bit. But I haven't lo- um, lost sight of the main goal, and that is to create diversity um, in film and in um, theatre. Because like um, I know like you know Johnny Ruffalo Johnny Ruffalo Johnny Ruffalo whatever that guy's name he's it was it was a sh- it was not that great of a singer went on X Factor got into the final twelve oh, Johnny Ruffo, yeah. yeah Johnny Ruffalo really he's not that great of a singer but you know whatever <laughs> uh, he got into the final twelve and finished X Factor got on Home and Away and now he's pretty much a staple on Home and Away so that. You know, X Factor <laughs> top twelve, uh, not X Factor. Um, Australia's Got Talent top twelve. Get out and then hey, uh, neighbors home and away. Um, here. <laughs> I don't know. Just interjecting. I think Sukri could totally take X Factor as well. <laughs> <laughs> you should just be my like uh, agent. You just scout me to there all. There are the... opportunities for everyone in this room. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah, but I don't, I don't know if Neighbours and um, home, home and Away is my cup of tea, just to put that out there. Oh, like, but, uh, I, I was watching it the other day, and it is just so it. pasty white. Like, yeah, yeah it it's very whitewashed. The only, so the only I saw kind an Indian of, once, yeah, but yeah. she was wearing a sari. Oh, but they killed, Neighbours killed, they killed the Indi- Indian family out. They, oh, my God. So they killed the mother. Did they? And then, yeah, they killed the mother, and then the family just, you know, had to leave for reasons oh. unknown. <laughs> and they have, uh, they have this. They have one. You, you. I know. I know. You're an avid neighbors watcher. Nate I, is the I, only. Nate I is the only kind of. No way. I, do, I, do, I, I would I, not have guessed that. I, 
A lot of people say that. I don't know why they. I don't know why everyone. Because you hoops. That's the exact same response you got a beard. by everyone. <laughs> but I, I enjoy watching that. Got a beard. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, oh, yeah. <laughs> but um, I was gonna ask you um, because you obviously write. You know, you write poetry. Yeah. But I wanted to know what your what the process is for you to perform because I feel like what's spoken about poetry. There's a performance mm. element to it, and what's that process like for you? So how do you like prepare to like perform a piece? Like, yeah. Um, so all my, po- I'm going to, yeah, all my poetry is just like everyone would be based on personal experiences. And I have, I found, um, verbatim theater in high school. And I don't know if you've heard of verbatim theater, but it's basically, no. um, word for word. Normally they're around cases. Like, you know, the one, the play I read was the Laramie project and it was about the beating, the brutal beating right. of two homosexual guys right. in Wyoming in America in the eighties right. and nineties, I think. Yep. So that play was word for word, all the different accounts of all the, all the witnesses. So when I do my poetry, when I when someone has said something to me um, that is you know could be discriminatory or stuff stuff that I've soaked up, yep. um, instead of you know chucking a fuss, I'll have my cry and my rant, right, and then right. I'll be like, now I think I want to how I heal and how I get over a situation yep. is writing it down, but then taking it in the next step and actually performing it because right. as soon as I perform. I let go and okay. it turns into a comedy. It turns into a very detached experience and I can say it again and again, still bring out a bit of emotion yeah. um, from like a bit of acting background, yeah. but also, um, yeah, also remember that, you know, just like every performer would say that your your audience might, you know, even though I'll say that same poem a million times yeah. and a lot of audiences might have heard it a million times, but there will be that one person who's never heard it and they need to hear it exactly. Like it's a um, consistency thing. Right. Yeah. Right, right. And who are your, like, favourite poets or poets that inspire you personally? I know everyone says this, but um, I the first spoken word poet I stumbled upon was Sarah Kay. And, ah, right, yeah. And yeah. she um, – it was that TED Talk and I was like, oh, my God, this is perfect. This is what I want to do. So I, like, got obsessed with her. Um, and it is probably because um, she's very popular as well, so there's a lot yeah. more available. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think in Melbourne um, – I'm really biased because I think I just love, oh, not not biased. I'm diplomatic because I love all like because you learn you learn about the person and then you see them perform and you're like, oh, so much respect. Yeah. So I have a lot of respect for a lot of local artists too. Right. Um, right. But I am. I think when it comes to there's a Sikh um, girl, her name is Rupi Kaur and she's from Canada yes. and she yeah. um, is a great inspiration because. Uh, yeah, she. If you look at her Instagram posts, and she does little drawings with her poetry, and and they're just so on point, and yeah. she's not afraid, and she's also got you know a really badass um, vibe to her. And actually, I was at White Night last night, and there was a tree outside the state library. And it had little quotes. I don't know who did it. I don't know what could have kind of linked, maybe it was linked to the library or something. Right. And it had a quote. I happened to be walking past, saw Rupi Kaur, and I was like, hang on, who <laughs> is one of her poems on a tree? I took a photo and sent it to her, and I was like, holy moly, we're on the other side of the world. Yeah. And that is so beautiful to know. That's a good, it's a good feeling. Like, I, one of my favorite poets is like oh, Sharon Olds, for example. I don't know if you've, um, she's an American poet. Amazing. Check check her work out. Yeah. She's amazing. And when I see like quotes from her or people at poetry readings who like recite her poems, it just like it shivers. Like I am just and it makes me feel more connected to like I guess poets or you know yeah. her work or whatever. Oh. Amazing. You're talking about um tokenism before. Are you kind of afraid that might happen to you? Are you afraid that, say, for example, now you've kind of, like, let's say, for example, smashed the glass ceiling. Mm. Um, say after X Factor, um, why am I always saying X Factor? <laughs> Stuff X Factor. After show's got talent, after show's got talent, do you do you foresee? Because like a lot of times, you 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 see people smash through the ceiling, but then they're more often than not they become tokenized and they're the the token brown person, the token Muslim, the token Sikh, in your case, um, to talk about all these issues. And sometimes you're not equipped to talk about those issues. Sometimes you don't want to always be talking about those issues. Is that a fear of yours? Of course. I think that would have been um, a decision or choice I had to make at a very young age when I started putting my 
putting myself out there for a lot of leadership positions um, back in Perth, whether it came to high school or the community, um, especially in the Sikh community, I was the token um, Sikh girl that would be emceeing at all the events or would be um, going to represent Sikh youth in different conferences and all that. So I think I'm used to it. But the reason I moved to Melbourne was because I didn't want to be the daughter of someone, the son, the sister of someone, um, the family member of someone or that Sikh girl. Um, I wanted to be Sikhjit and I wanted to express myself and learn who I was without all that. And now that I've had that, t- I know I still haven't, it's only been 11 months, but I feel like I've, I've had that um, grounding and time to explore and just be like ultimately free that I'm kind of um, learning how I've got like if I wanted to um, talk about a certain issue for example if I want to talk about sexuality um, I can't talk about that right now but if I have a 10-step plan of how I could get there in the near future and be able to talk about that as a Sikh girl that would be amazing but you have to first um, you have to first gain the trust of your community, gain the trust of your fans. And so right now I'm currently at a very um, safe, um, yeah, I'm at a very safe point where I, I hope, you know, if, for example, if you were talking along the lines of, you know, tokenism or someone going, oh, um, we need an Indian for this. Unfortunately, there is like two sides to the coin. One side is, yeah, you can't escape the fact that your skin color is a certain color. Can't help it. If you want to get plastic surgery, go ahead. But right now, I've got brown skin. I've got hairy armpits. So, yeah, I will be categorized in a certain spot. But how I use that and actually learn how to use that to the you know, to my advantage, that would be pretty cool. So yeah, I might get boxed in a lot of things, but I'm learning how to be picky with a lot of opportunities that come my way. And I can, I'm, I'm very thankful that, you know, I've been given an upbringing that, you know, that you do get an intuition of like, what is dodgy? What's worth it? What's not? When are people using you? Um, and when are you being used? Like, I understand that with Australia's Got Talent, yeah, it's probably... Um, yeah, it's probably unplaced there. A lot of people might say, a lot of um, reviewers might say, oh, you look at her, she's just a token brown person they got to make everyone feel good or, you know, she's got a story or blah, blah, blah. But that's good for them. But I know I've got my own agenda and I think I could wash my hands right now and walk away from the competition and be so satisfied with what has happened because that, that type of seek PR is not happened in history when it comes to being able to just talk about who Sikhs are, especially after 9-11. It's just been so hard. You could spend millions and billions of dollars on PR and advertising and NGOs and all that, but to get up there and be handed those two minutes for free, of course I'm going to grab that opportunity. Also, what I want to talk to you about is, you know, you performed with you performed before Miss Higgins. How was that? It was funny because people think, because the event was planned um, way before Australia's Got Talent stuff started. She saw me perform at um, Walk Together, um, which was the, um, I don't know if you guys have heard of Welcome to Australia. Um, so at the Walk, we ended up at Fed Square in Melbourne and... Um, I did the Advanced Australia Fair poem and there was Claire Bowditch who did some songs, um, Jamila Rivesby who was the editor of um, Mamma Mia was there, a couple of MPs um, and like a Green Centre or something. Um, and I did the poem, I got off stage and I'm the biggest fan of Missy Higgins, like, oh my God, just love, love, love her. And there's something about like... Aussie artists that have like an accent when they sing is just like even Aussie hip hop. I'm like obsessed with Aussie hip hop because of the accent and I just, I just love it and I prefer it. Um, so seeing her and she, I was like star, what is that when you're like, oh, flustered, starstruck, absolutely starstruck. I did not have words to talk and she was just like, oh, hey, yeah, you know, we should hang out because my husband's into spoken word and he used to do spoken word um, back in the day and I'd love for you to meet him. And I was like, oh, and then... She finds me on Twitter and she goes, hey, I found you. Would love, you know, 
um, you to perform at my event and I fainted and I like could not believe that it was happening. And then obviously like Australia's Got Talent stuff was happening so I was busy with that. And then I rock up to the gig on Wednesday and I've been so busy that it didn't hit me that this was happening. And I'm on the side stage and I'm about to go on and I do my thing and it's ama- it feels amazing. And then you walk off and then Missy's on doing her thing and I'm just sitting there watching the concert from side stage and just crying, like absolutely bawling my eyes out at how special that feeling was to, you know, know that it's so possible to get to achieve what you want. I don't have, you know, ties in the music industry in my family. My family is not, you know, from some acting, performing artsy family. And it's just hard when you're, you know, trying to break that scene and break those barriers and trying to get through. It's it's def- definitely who you know, but it's so special to know that people out there like Missy Higgins um, can recognise can recognize something and believe and believe in you. And that's it's an honour, seriously an honour. So, like, there's something that reminds me. I find a lot of parallels. Sorry, I'm a little bit incoherent. I find parallels with Ashley calling... Calling Bull, who won Mrs. Universe last year, and she's an, an Indigenous Canadian woman. And the next day, as soon as she won that title, she started posting in support of the rights and the conditions and the issues that concern the First Nations people of Canada. And she got a lot of backlash. Mm. And she responded, you know, like, what did you think? <laughs> you know, did you not think I was going to use this platform and talk about what I believe in? You think I'm just a pretty face? And so I guess in a similar way, did you get any backlash for, for your performance? My housemate, I love that example, by the way, that's beautiful. Um, my housemate has forbid me from reading comments and Missy Higgins told me never to read comments. So I actually, for the first time, took their advice and haven't read comments, but what I have read is my messages. So I have been getting, you know, in your Facebook and your Twitter and all your different, you know, ways and email as well because my email is public for inquiries. And um, I have been reading them in your little message request and filtered section. So you do, so you do get, um, you do get a lot of trolls. Um, and yesterday I actually posted a photo of one of them because, you know, I've been screenshotting them, not replying because I don't want to give in and actually give attention because that's what a lot of people want. So I'll block them, report them. Um, and then screenshot them and keep them in a folder called hate because I really want to use that one day and create something from it. Um, but, yeah, so one guy, he's just like, oh, you're a, you're a cancer to South Asians. You know, why don't you just shave your hairy armpits? You're so unhygienic. You're lowering the standards of the Indian community. Um, his name, it said Adam Lopez. I doubt it was an Adam Lopez. It had like a, I don't know, probably just made up a name. Um, and then, you know, a lot of swearing and... Just random stuff. I think it's just people um, can't handle, first of all, that you're talking about something that's so confronting, but also the fact that you're a feminist. And, you know, my cover photo on purpose, I haven't changed it. It's got my hairy armpits out there. And I do that um, consciously to say that if you love me, you've got to love all of me, like, because I love all of me. So if you want some, you can't just, like, have a part of it and just pick and choose what you like. But it's interesting. When you look at your, um, you know, Facebook pages, you can look at the insight section and see what demograph is actually liking and um, communicating on your page. And um, I've actually found it's actually men aged between 25 and 35. That's my demograph. I didn't even know that was my demograph. I've got marriage proposals. I've got uh, lots of people saying they love me and they just wanted me to be their life partner. Just, just one little favour. And I'm just like, wow. There you go. So I, I think what will be really interesting is when my next um, performance is um, what, because I, I know what it is. I can't share what it is, but you can probably gauge it's a little bit more um, controversial and it's going to open up another uh, I, chapter I, I, of me. I think I've, I've seen it, maybe. Yeah, I think I have too. I think I've seen it and, it's, and I'm, I'm, I'm really excited for it. Yeah. But I think I think uh, we're gonna have to yep. say goodbye. Oh. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. <laughs> and everyone, um, please, you know, su- support Sukjit. Uh, find her on Facebook, Twitter, and all that kind of stuff. Watch her on Channel Nine. Channel Nine. Channel Nine on Australia's Got 
talent. <laughs> if you want to see her advance, because uh, voting, it's voting, isn't it? Yeah, so we're voting. Yep. There'll be a voting. I'm mm. going to vote for you. Oh, I've thanks, got you. man. No thanks, worries. <laughs> we're all going to vote for you. <laughs> Race card endorses, publicly yes. endorses Sukjit oh. uh, for Australia's Got Talent. All right, so if you're listening, you do the same. Uh, again, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. Tony Abbott was really never a deeply popular figure among the electorate. Yes. Tony Abbott faced some hostility of his own. Good morning, sir. How are you? Oh, really? <laughs> and uh, really the reason why his prime ministership has crumbled is because he lost the support of the electorate and ultimately the governing Liberal uh, Party. This is not an easy so, day for many people in this building. Leadership changes are never easy for our country. The, the Prime Minister's not going to lose, he's going to win. Uh, my Goodbye, pledge Tony. today Tony. is Goodbye. to make Goodbye, this change Goodbye. as easy Goodbye, as I can. Now we're going into our segment, The Week That Was, where we highlight some of the most notable or infamous stories from the past week. So, um, this is very exciting news. Uh, Clever Man, uh, a new TV show with um, an 80% Indigenous cast, becomes the first Australian show to premiere at Berlin International Film Festival, also known as um, Berlinale. And also, it's one of the leading film festivals in the world. So the TV show uh, is set in the near future. A breed from ancient mythology are forced to live with the inhabitants of the Earth, humans, and fight to survive against the silence and exploitation of humans as they seek to destroy them. Now, at the centre of this uh, story are two estranged brothers, Cohen and Waru West, who are forced... uh, who are forced together to battle against terrifying enemies, both human and not of this world. Uh, One of the producers, Rosemary Blight, recalls uh, there being a lot of questions regarding the writing room. So she said uh, the team, two Indigenous writers and two non-Indigenous writers, had uh, to find a way to take the stories into the future and, and be entertaining because this was an anthology. This was not an anthology. It's a drama, she says. It's like knitting. It was so complicated. It was certainly the hardest thing I've ever been involved with. But the difficulties pushed the creativity, made everything more deep. Now, I just want to give a quick shout-out to one of the um, actresses, Deborah Mailman. She is an Australian television and film actress. She was the first Aboriginal actress uh, to win the Australian Film Institute Award for Best Actress in Leading Role. She is well known for having played the character Kelly on successful Australian television series The Secret Life of Us. Have you guys watched? Did you guys watch that back in the day? Uh, no, but I do remember her from Play School, and she was one of my childhood uh, heroes. She's awesome. I'd just like to say that. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm really excited for this show because... We've been talking a long time about television in Australia being so bloody white uh, and how there isn't enough diversity on television. Now we have a 80% um, Indigenous cast in this show about an Indigenous superhero, and that is so cool. Spring is my favourite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. It's amazing. Like. And, yeah, like, and, and, and this is not even just like, um, like, this is not like a, oh, this isn't a small show. This is humongous. It's being backed by a lot of people. Yes. You know? Um, it's, it's amazing because it's... It's very, like, it's, it's sci-fi. So, like, they're portraying normal people, um, normal characters, and it's not about, well, it's not, you know... It's just about uh, them being people, right? Exactly. That's and I, thing. Exactly. And I feel that that's so refreshing to me to, to see or to hear because usually it's about, well, any minority, usually it's about them being minority, a minority. But anyways, I, I like the fact that they're... Um, 
just being sci-fi characters. Yeah, they just sense. yeah, they're just people who happen to be indigenous on the show, and, yes. it's, and it's really cool because like, and also we've been talking about how you might have a diverse cast, but you also just have a very kind of white writing room. Yes. And that isn't the case. You have two indigenous. So out of the four writers, two of them are indigenous, two yep. of them are non-indigenous. Yeah. And that's really that's really encouraging. Uh, and I, I'm personally very excited for this show, and I think it's going to be... So am I. Yeah, it's going to... Because I, I think there, there are a lot of really notable people working on the show. I think people who've worked on The Hunger Games, people that's worked on uh, Game of Thrones, a lot of people... Like, this is going to be... I think Sundance TV are a part of this as well. So this is going to be yeah. like a humongous television series. It's going to be six episodes, one hour each episode. And yeah, it's, it's really exciting. So I'm just assuming that when we talk about the breed from ancient mythology, it's, I, I don't know, this sounds very weird to say, but it's basically not fiction, right? Like it's an actual ancient mythology? Uh, I don't think, I don't think it's, I think it's fiction. It's oh, all purely fiction. Yeah, it's purely fiction. Well, well, what I was going to say anyway was that I think it's a great creative and artistic expression just to have that, you know, that diversity. Not just, you know, the characters in the writing room or whatever, but the storyline. <laughs> the storyline yeah. is great. It sounds very exciting. It is, it Do we have any idea, like, what time, like, when can we expect oh, it, to it see should this? Be, shouldn't it be out, like, mid-2016, mid maybe, like, June-July? But there's going to be a screening, like Magan said, in... Where was it? Uh, Berlin. Berlin. And that's very soon. But, like, uh, I yeah. saw a... We were watching a trailer earlier of the show, and it seemed really interesting. And there's, like... I'm very, very excited for this because we don't usually get, like, shows that are... Like, we th- there aren't very many superhero shows that are based in Australia at all. Mm-hmm. And for the first one to be about Indigenous, uh, in- indigenous superheroes is pretty awesome. Yeah. Um, and I, yeah, I'm not a massive sci-fi fan but I am <laughs> but the fact that they've um, they're they're playing I mean the main characters are indigenous well, right um, but it's a, it's sci-fi it's not like yeah it's not about know, them it's, it's, it's about them mean? Exactly. Being, yeah exactly just same as like Benjamin Law's um, TV show yeah the family right? law right. Just, yeah. I mean yeah <laughs> um, they're just it's just a family right yeah. and, and they just happen to be Chinese Australians exactly exactly and, um, and yeah uh, and then I, I guess like um, the thing is, right, that we normalize these ideas of people just being people instead of being kind of like the the story is them being migrants, being refugees, being um, racialized, being kind of like um, being all, all these negative attributes being uh, being the story opposed to them just being people. Yeah, just, you know, on that topic, I think it's very interesting because when we usually talk about indigenous people or when we think about them, we posit them with the past, you know, um, at best the present. So I think to translate that into the, you know, fictional world, but as well as the future, Mm. I think that's pretty transgressive. I think that's very exciting. Put more beautiful people of colour on TV and connect viewers in ways which transcend race and unite us. That's the real Team Australia. Yeah, you look at the American TV, British TV. It, you know, has uh, you know, it's got shows with d- different nationalities, and 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 not just putting nationalities just for the point of difference, but creating work that caters for um, actors of different backgrounds. In my mind, I see a line. Over that line, I see green fields and lovely flowers and beautiful white women with their arms stretched out to me over that line. But I can't seem to get there, no how. I can't seem to get over that line. That was Harriet Tubman in the 1800s. And let me tell you something. The only thing that separates women of color from anyone else is opportunity. You cannot win an Emmy for roles that are simply not there. Early this week, an Indigenous politician, Bess Nangara Price, was told she couldn't speak her language in Parliament. A few months back, Mrs Price said that it wasn't the words that troubled her, but the language they were spoken in. However, NT Speaker Kayser Perik said 
For the transaction of everyday business, the language of assembly is English. On that basis, should a member use a language other than English without the leave of the assembly, it will be ruled dis uh, disorderly and the member will be required to withdraw the words. Um, they also decided that it wouldn't it would be complex and costly to have indigenous languages incorporated into parliament and right now we've got BuzzFeed's indigenous affairs reporter Alan Clark on the line hi Alan thanks for coming on the show thank you very much for having me You're like why why is it so complex and costly for indigenous politicians like mrs price to speak her own language in parliament well i think the real issue here is that well there's a sort of standing orders of the anti parliament and every subsequent parliament around the country um, say that the official language of the House or, you know, within, within Parliament is English. So I think that, that's the issue. Beth was, it was, this happened last year during a heated debate um, about education and, and um, Beth felt like she, uh, you know, she wasn't getting a word in, so she said something in Walpuri, which is her traditional language, um, and then that was objected to by several Labor um, MPs, who then basically um, said that you know um, she should be speaking English so they understand. This speaker agreed with them because it is in the standing order. So, um, so that that incident happened last December, and then earlier this year, Beth wrote a letter contesting that and said that she should feel free to she should be able to speak her traditional language in Parliament. And uh, the speaker wrote to her again and said, well, the only way to um, have this change is to actually change the standing orders in the parliament. So that's the real issue. But obviously, um, a lot of Indigenous people are upset, saying that, you know, we should have a right to speak our languages in parliament. Um, Best was advocating for uh, to be able to speak her language and then immediately have it translated into English so that people in... Um, the Legislative Assembly in the Northern Territory would be able to then understand what she was saying. So um, I think that's the issue in a nutshell. But essentially, the, the standing orders remain that, you know, English is the language of the House. Uh, maybe that's time for a discussion. Maybe this will bring about discussion into whether, um, you know, Beth might challenge those standing orders, and that could potentially set a precedent. Also, because um, it's... Obviously, you know, um, this is traditional owners of lands language, obviously, and like you, you would think um, to incorporate more Indigenous people into Parliament and to, to make that a viable option, you'd create um, something like this to incorporate language to, to make people feel it is an accessible area for them to, an accessible venture for them to enter. Yeah, and I suppose the argument is that, well, does the parliament accommodate for Indigenous people whose second language is English, perhaps, particularly in a place like the Northern Territory um, or, part, or Western Australia even, where, you know, English is, um, uh, you know, often the second or third languages for many um, Aboriginal communities. So um, for them to actually come into parliament and um, utilise English, maybe they're not... They, they wouldn't be able to do that to their best ability. So maybe there is scope there to look into, well, if we want to encourage more people from remote or kind of traditional communities to get involved in politics, maybe we do need to look at having, uh, say, translators or uh, interpreters actually in, um, in the parliament. Um, there are some countries that do have that. I know in Canada, in Canada there are also... Um, bilingual in terms of French and English, and they have translations um, from time to time. So um, it's not impossible, but as you say there, it's a very good point. Um, how are we going to encourage people who maybe English is a third or fourth language to get into politics, which is so heavily rooted in an uh, English kind of uh, English system? And also because um, we've seen in other countries, I'm pretty sure New Zealand have a more accommodating aspect to uh, the Maori people, um, the Indigenous people over there, in terms of how they can enter Parliament. Is that something lacking in Australia? Well, it's, I think it's very different. Um, I mean, if you, when you're talking New Zealand, you're talking about also a school system that, um, you know, teaches Maori to everyone from a very young age. Uh, people are very engaged with Maori culture from a very young age. Everybody feels like they, you know, 
they, they're part of the history of New Zealand. I guess when you look at Australia, it's very different. We don't do that. We don't um, learn Aboriginal languages. Um, but I think there's appetite. Um, the Prime Minister, you know, on the, when he delivered the closing the report, uh, closing the gap um, report um, last week, opened his address in, in Ngunnawal, which is the traditional language of Canberra, and, um, and it was um, largely applauded by, um, you know, Aboriginal leaders and community members. So I think it's a, um, you know, there is appetite and it could, could you know, could be the way of the future if um, everybody got behind it. But um, at the same time, Maori, there is a common language. There are, in Australia, you know, over... There are hundreds of Aboriginal languages, so maybe we'd have to decide on a common one for the parliament um, to be introduced. I'm banning all rap this year at the awards. Yeah, don't get me wrong, I love hip hop, obviously. But tonight, it's all about soul. Okay, hold on a second. I got another call. Wait a minute. No, honestly, man, you are my favorite artist out right now. But I ain't letting anybody in with no littles and youngs and they name. Yeah. Hang on one second. I'm sorry, y'all. Uh, yes. Who is this? Iggy Azalea. Yeah, hey. Oh, no, 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 no. You can come, because what you're doing is definitely not rap. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I got on my overalls. Yeah. In fact, I'm going to send an Uber for you right now. Yeah, come on, be outside. We've spoken about the, the High Court ruling a few weeks ago, but in the past couple of days, the attempts of um, the return of baby Asha to Nauru have been you know, quite substantial after after she had serious burns that made her go to the hospital in, in Queensland. And a lot of people were worried about her and whether she'd be sent back. Um, and over the weekend, activists and doctors alike joined forces in preventing her release from the, from the Lady Salentino Children's Hospital in Brisbane. Um, and you know, but the thing that worries me is that after this ordeal that she had being burnt, very substantially in Nauru. Um, the thought was, hey, she'll get recovered and then we're going to send her back um, to Nauru, right? And like, what was what was very kind of troubling was it, it took um, protesters barricading themselves in the roads um, that lead into the hospital, that took um, them making sure that no vehicles could leave the hospital for them to make a scene for, for uh, Peter Dutton to think, hey, maybe we shouldn't send a uh, one-year-old baby to a detention center. Um, and what was extremely worrying was uh, when, um, so an advocate of the family, Natasha Blotcher, um, told the media um, a few days ago, um, uh, talking about the mother, she, sa she said, she told me she didn't know where she would be going, she being Asha, um, going because they wouldn't tell her. I think that's quite scary for somebody with a little baby to know that people who have power to take you somewhere and that you have no right to know where that is. And and that's extremely scary. Can you imagine being a mother in that situation and not having control of where your child may go? Um, thankfully, you know, like even saying thankfully this, it, it, it's a stretch. Um, they decided they'll be in community detention in, in Australia um, and that the parent, the, the mother and, and daughter will be together. Um, that's great. But the fact that they're still in detention is a huge issue, isn't it? I mean... I think speaking to that, I think it's very, it's very telling, but at the same time, it's concerning that you could send a baby or a child or anyone back to the place of abuse. I mean, that is not the kind of protocol you would have. And that is something that disproportionately, it seems, to affect undocumented people, or not just undocumented people, but this use of legality in order to preface humanity. 
because like let's just let's just we look at the history books legality has never been any kind of scope for morality it's never been a kind of like all right so just because because something is legalized doesn't mean it's good and i, f- I feel like we've got to get over this idea that because something's written in law that means um, the moral bastions of, of uh, the lawmakers know what's right for, for, for humans at large. And we just look at Australia's history and it's clearly um, not been the case. Right. But as well as, you know, when we talk about child services or in a more Australian context, I think you wouldn't necessarily send a child back, you know what I mean, back to an area of abuse. So even even in terms of legality, even if you do look at it in that sense, that protocol does not make sense. Or does it get limited to documentation? Yeah, exactly. And who has the right to be taken care of and have a safe haven in in that sense? Because say, for example, a child was being abused in a family family setting, that child would be immediately taken and looked after and would be make sure not to be in that setting again. But this child who's being put in detention, even the idea of putting child, children in detention is disgusting. Putting this child already, this one-year-old child, can you imagine? And probably by that time, she was probably like a couple of months, not necessarily one, uh, because it's been going for some time. A one-year-old child, maybe less than, in a detention center. Um, and then that being, like, there's so many things that could happen. There's so many abuse that could, could that could be happen. There's so many horrible things that that, that, that leaves scope for that being there in it's, it's just mind-blowing yeah and that just reminds me back to was it the john howard days when he started this pr idea of um asylum seekers were basically throwing their children over over overseas or something like that like for, over the boat or something as a means to justify this is why we can't let these kind of values come into our country or whatever it is and it's like well it looks like your values aren't that different you're just throwing people back you know throwing babies back into areas of abuse. You're actually not caring for them either. Even, I mean, obviously that's not to say that his PR agenda was true. I'm just saying, even if you suppose it is true, it's not that you're any different. As a matter of fact, I actually think he's worse. I mean, reality is people are not throwing their children, um, you know, out of boats, but... Like, even about that, like, I I have a friend who was actually, um, two friends whose family was on a boat um, that was featured in documentary a few a few years ago, about exact that moment when he said that, um, and they thankfully came to Australia, and now three of them, uh, one's, uh, one's at least a university graduate, two of them are in university, um, and they're making their way, and they're obviously contributing to society, and this, this myth, right, that refugees who come to Australia don't contribute to society is, is, is obviously a fallacy, because these, th- these three people are now going to go into a workplace or workforce, whatever, um, and contribute, pay taxes or what have you, and has made Australia as a country more beneficial, you know, it's, it's, they've given back so much, and this idea that refugees are lazy and all that kind of jazz is, as I said, just like a, a fallacy and just riding on that last point i mean do we need to wait for them to be successful in a capitalist in a you know productive the way how we imagine productive sense you know so is that does that justify the conditions you know the conditionality of accepting people you know i i feel like you know i, I think it comes from a good place like i understand why there are campaigns of you know this person used to be like a refugee and now they're a surgeon and they're doing great things. And I think that's great. I'm not saying, I'm not trying to discount any of that. I'm just wary that oh, there are different, you know, intersections with that kind of argument. And that's not to disband, uh, disband sorry, um, or discredit um, to the asylum seekers and refugees who do come to Australia, of course. Um, no, but this is the thing, like, um, people that come here are just people, right? And there mm-hmm. are people that will go to university. There are people that will have struggles in life. There are people that will... Um, find means elsewhere and the idea is that they're just like anybody else and not to differentiate them from uh, the regular Joe Blow or, or or anyone on the street, right? I'm Luke from Indigenous X and you're listening to The Race Card. So moving on, for those of us in social justice circles, anti-racism is a term many of us are familiar with, particularly amongst educators and those of us in tertiary education systems. 
And while it is understandable, perhaps even arguably necessary for the rise and continu continuity of critical race studies in academia from establishing legitimate, in quotation marks, legitimate research, as well as documenting and learning from each other and thinkers, the risk of inaccessibility becomes ever more pertinent. And by relying on academic jargon to carry through our anxieties and, co and compensate for our actions or inactions, anti-racism becomes stifled. It is not that anti-racism has no place in the education system or in academia at large, but rather it deserves to permeate beyond that. One can be anti-racist and anti-oppression more broadly without having to be an academic, for instance, or use academic lan language. And after all, by closing off or undernourishing the many ways anti-racism, activism, and education can take place, we risk limiting such impact and conversations within the academic sector, effectively operating through exclusion. Because, you know, long story short, not everyone's going to go through tertiary education, and they don't have to. However, we have witnessed more unconventional yet effective means of anti-racism work, Education en masse is part of that. Last night marked the third year of Melbourne's White Night festivities. Mel Melbourne's Spoken Word had an artist lineup from 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. And while not necessarily an act of resistance and subversion in and of itself, it provided the platform for several spoken word artists to speak their truth and identity, belonging, and discrimination on public stage. Melbourne Museum and the Bunjalaka Aboriginal Cultural Centre presented Woman Jeka, Black Knight, which opened the doors of the First People's Exhibition from sundown to sunrise to an audience of several thousands to educate themselves on the living cultures of Victoria's Koori people. And complementing that, there were spectacular projections on the Royal Exhibition Building and Millari Gardens with lights and sounds brought to life with the Open Your Eyes show by Pichamekin Fellas and Okabu with the electric canvas. Um, whose storyline enthralled audiences as it spoke of indigenous knowledge of seasons. And of course, we have Benjamin Law's um, The Family Law TV series being picked up by a major television broadcasting group. And while none of these are directly or explicitly anti-racist, its subversion comes through its accessibility and material existence. What are your thoughts on that? Like, I, like I agree, like this idea that um, anti-racism dialogue can only happen through academics and people who have this kind of like this the language so to speak is it's it, you know it's, it's also very classless when people think about it like not everyone can go to university not everyone can actually go to these classes um people find other ways to talk about race you don't necessarily need to talk like even that example of benjamin law right um he doesn't necessarily explicitly talk about race they just they talk about the way they talk about race is through subtleties. And I was talking to Magan beforehand, and he was saying like the way that he was navigating his identity throughout that show was through subtleties. And those little subtle kind of um, discussions that happen, those little things that, that they do. And the idea is that to kind of like normalize these things, right? To kind of like have one way to show, one way of anti-racist work is to normalize seeing people that you don't normally see so seeing that what you saw last night the um, black knight that was normalizing um seeing indigenous art and making that very accessible seeing benjamin law show on sbs um that's making it more accessible even though he wrote a book but not, not everyone knew about that book right um and and all these kinds of things because i feel like we have to we have to stop we have to kind of like diversify the way we even see anti-racist work because all the time we're, we're quoting these great academics and, and they are so crucial but ideas need to filter down and for them to filter down you need them to be put into public culture so you need podcasts like us you know subscribe to risk <laughs> uh, you, you need shows you need you need articles that are that that talk in in like um lay lay language you know what i mean the everyday person can understand so and and also like what i always wonder is why does academia have to be so wordy Everyone can play a part in this. So academics obviously have their part and they're very important because they've, you know, studied many years in, like, race theory, for example. But, like, I think artists, like, for example, Amir Rahman's um, video on reverse racism, like, it, it like... It blew uh, up. It, it, it blew up and it's very accessible. People could easily understand what he was saying. Um, and so I feel, well, one of the reasons, well, I don't know, one of the reasons of doing anti-racist work, I feel anyway, is to make people of colour human. That's what essentially what we're fighting for or, or, or we're saying, right? So 
and what's a way what's some ways of humanizing someone like you tell a personal story about that person about that group or whoever um like to go back to benjamin law's um tv show um the main character benjamin you could see that he was um you know awkward and um and was into like acting and um his relationship with his siblings and you know it's it's very relatable to every person it's actually universal you know family relationships dysfunctional families his mother (laughs) he was awesome um yes i feel like we can all play play a part in in that because because we all know on one level you know these stories like relationship between mother and daughter or mother and father is universal but there's a group of people who maybe the world doesn't see as human and through I think subtleties like that it can be shown so easily like all you need to mm-hmm. do for to sh- I don't know to show I'll take my use myself as an example if someone was going to write about me for example um it could just show simple things like I like neighbors for example or I love fruit and I love dancing and you know I I, I um the school that I went to first was blah blah there and and I had my first memory there or I had my first dance there or whatever um and that's automatically like humanizing me if that makes sense yeah and so th- this whole thing reminded me of a movie I watched like 10 years ago um has any of, any of you watched Head of State Head of State is that Chris Rock? yeah Chris Rock and Bernie yeah. Mac the late Bernie Mac no, yeah. um so basically Chris Rock is running to be president and um I think there was a question about policy and he basically some says something to the effect of um if you want to have people understand policy changes or encourage policy change or whatever, put it in a music video. And, you know, I watched this like 10 years ago. And very honestly, like at, even at the time, I was not conscious at all. Like I had no like recollection of any of these things. Um, sorry, not recollection, but I had no like understanding, like I could academic understanding of oppression. But it was it was it hit me. I was like, yeah, that's true. Because you know what? People are not following our conversations in parliament, you know, like teenagers are probably not doing that, not on mass at least, you know, um, people at university, probably not either, like as much as we like to think that they're academic or they're, you know, in that type of field. But when you have, for, even with like Sukchi, even going on Australia's Got Talent, you know, um, family law, we're talking about that, um, White Knight last night was pretty, pretty on that as well. And I think it's great. And I and I like seeing that, you know, like Beyonce when she had feminists written behind her. Right. I think that's all great examples of how we can make this accessible because the truth is, you know, a book is so lengthy. A course is three years. <laughs> yeah. And not everyone's going to have the time, resources or anything to go through those things. And everyone kind of deserves to have a piece of the message. Yeah, like uh, we, talk, we talked about um, Beyonce's video last week and how SNL did like a skit about how white people reacted to it. And that in itself, that in its own right, is a clever way of of showing kind of like white fragility without any of that jargon, right? Yeah. So you're showing how people react to Beyonce doing the smallest thing that kind of incorporate her blackness. Like, oh, I didn't expect it to be that that the reaction to be that strong, and that video kind of like um, put it in a nutshell. Like people, were like oh my god, she's black, right? <laughs> and that and that thing, like, and we're talking about seeing people as humans, and it. And and that became, oh, she's black. That means she's weird. You know what I mean? So that kind of thing. So, I, like, I totally agree. And this idea that we have to have things in, in, in kind of like, thirteen thousand word theses and and what have you is, is just it's ridiculous. Why do people need a, like th- that needs to be there? But that is not the be all the end all. And I feel like yeah. that has become the be and all in all of race kind of discussions. And mm. right. And just going back in academia and talking about discussion you know i think we also have to be mindful that a lot of this is in english in academic english um not just any kind of academic you know uh language um so for example one of the very um eye-opening things i've done in the past is being editor of my university magazine but that in itself was not the you know that was not it um, when I started writing on anti-racism for that student publication, I would take home these print copies. My parents would read them. My parents are Filipino and Sri Lankan. They are very high-functioning indiv- individuals, but 
they don't have the same command of English as I do. Um, of course, we can communicate and stuff on an everyday, daily basis. Mm. But when they would read my articles and they would come to me and say, Amina, could you translate this paragraph for me? Like, I actually don't understand what this means. And it's very telling when people who are affected by racism for in this instance cannot understand what you're writing. And, you know, I think I fall into that trap where I do use academic language. I do write quite academically, but it, it, it kind of started... I guess, uh, an initiative or like, a, not initiative, but what's the word? Like a reason for me to rethink my, my ways of doing things and yeah. maybe write a little bit more accessibly. Yeah. And uh, with that, that's our show for this week. Hope you've enjoyed it. Don't forget to podcast it if you just tuned in and if you want to hear the rest of the show. You can follow the show on Twitter at The Race Guard and our co-hosts. Uh, me, Ahmed Yusuf, you can follow me at... Ahmed Yusuf 10 and I'm pretty sure Muggan has places you can find him as well <laughs> yeah on Twitter the handle Muggan Muggan 9 yeah uh, I don't think only Twitter uh, uh, the yeah. SoundCloud is SoundCloud as well it's Uggan Muggan um, but you can if you go to my Twitter you can you have all the you have all the that, that's a central page basically <laughs> but also yeah. um, you can find us on Facebook facebook.com forward slash race card show you can find us on Tumblr, Racecard, Podcast, Tumblr.com. You can find us on the interwebs, Racecardpodcast.com. And please, you know, rate and review us on iTunes. Help us jump those iTunes charts and, you know, help the show out. All right, that's me saying uh, goodbye for this week. And thank you for listening, as always. <laughs> See ya. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.